Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another FS Club webinar. Uh, today is uh, fun and, in fact, uh, slightly different. We're, we're having a, a famous author here, Chris Grant, uh, talking to us about now what? Practical wisdom for better decision making at work and home. Uh, we'll be getting on to Chris's book in a minute, but uh, any book entitled Better Decisions has to be a must buy, I think. So there you go. Go and make a better decision and buy this book at the end of this session. Uh, enough for the promo. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm the executive chairman of Zen Group, and it is my privilege to be uh, one of the people who gets to host these fantastic sessions. Uh, and the reason is all due to our sponsors. Our sponsors are very generous, uh, both in time and money, but in addition, they let us range widely and freely across subjects of technology, finance, and better purpose in life. And uh, today's uh, session falls very firmly into the better purpose of life. Wouldn't the world be a better place if every day people made better decisions? Funnily enough, that was one of the founding mantras of Xi'an some 26 years ago. Wouldn't the world be a better place if people made better decisions every day? Now, the agenda today is, as ever, I am here to get out of your way as quickly as possible. And on to Chris. Uh, we are going to have approximately 20 to 25 minutes of an address by Chris about uh, much of the book. I hasten to add, in fact, that I have myself read the book and enjoyed it enormously uh, here in all great bishops. Uh, and I like the bit on the back here, which is don't just take decisions, make them. I think uh, that's, a, that's an excellent theme for life. And the decision that I would ask you, the audience, to make, if you wouldn't mind, is to use the GoTo webinar uh, facility, which allows you to uh, ask us questions anytime that you like. So, uh, with no further ado, I would like to hand on to Chris, but I'm having a teensy problem at the moment with my slides. So bear with me a moment whilst I just uh, re regenerate them. Here we go. My apologies. We seem to have overstepped. We're having a small technology problem here, Chris. That's okay. Uh, can you regenerate me as well? Can I regenerate you? This this sounds very good. Uh, dynamic indeed. But don't mind. Uh, what I'm going to do is, whilst the audience is thinking about questions, Chris, I will get this in shape. Why don't you and talk I'm, a little bit to, about your I'm life, Chip and Finn, and I'll get this fixed. I'm happy to start prattling, actually. I'll start, and, and with or without slides will be fine. So, first of all, I want to say thank you uh, to Zien and to all of you for, for showing up. Uh, I know from some of my personal contacts, some of you it, uh, it's breakfast time, some of you it's tea time, as here. Um, I promise not to speak for too long and to leave space for questions, and I promise that whether or not Michael can sort out the slides, we will be fine. So um, a little background on the book, and then I'm going to take you through some of the key, what I hope would be useful lessons, uh, and then uh, time for questions at the end. And the, the book came really from, uh, it's a long story. Uh, my background is as a consultant who has a particular interest in group dynamics and organization cultures. And at a certain point, quite a long time ago, I worked out that I'd been in the room or with the team on around 2000, uh, leadership groups or projects or strategy sessions or whatever. And my primary focus was on helping the groups get to where they wanted to go. And in the course of that, they needed to make lots of decisions. So I was curious in reflecting back on my work, 
what had helped them get to good ones and what had helped them get to not so good ones. So, so the primary driver was about work. But also, in, as I wrote, wrote it or started writing the book, I realized that both from my personal point of view and from the point of view of many people I spoke with about it, that actually most of the important decisions people make are not at work. We make decisions every day. And that I wanted to, the book, uh, in response to that, to, to, to feel as if it could be useful in life too, more generally. So whether you're here for work or for life, hopefully you'll get something useful. But I want to start with, if we can go to the next slide, which you've already seen. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, so one of, one of the bigger projects I've been involved in, um, back in the early 2000s was chairing the UK version of the program, which took pretty much the whole world now from writing a signature for check, for a, for a debit or credit card transaction to punching in your PIN number. And there were certain aspects of the decision making around that program, which brought together, uh, leaders from the financial services industry and the retail industry, who historically, I don't know if it's the same in other countries, but certainly in the UK, they tended not to get on that well with each other, although, of course, they need each other. Um, there are certain aspects of the decision-making process around that program, which I was particularly proud of, but which were tested by this particular logo. And I don't have the chance to get feedback from you. I imagine certainly most of you in the UK would recognize this logo because it's still seen. But as I'll tell you at the end, that kind of happened by accident. And one of the things I'm, I, I love about decision making and one of the many reasons why I haven't called this book, you know, right decisions or good decisions, it's only called better decisions, is that so much about decision making is, a, is an art, not a science. And you can have the best decision making process in the world and it will still end up badly. Or sometimes you can stumble into a good one as happened with this logo. But I'll come back to, to that. If we can move to the next slide. Yeah. So, Michael, you've already held up the back of the book, which says, don't just take a decision, make one. What do I mean by that? Well, my lens into that in the book is by talking about what I consider to be the shape of a decision. And for me, it's not just the shape of a decision, any decision. It can be the shape of a good project, a good program, even a good meeting or an agenda item within a meeting, which has three phases. And, and the final phase, which, which is this one, is the taking of a decision. It's the closing in. It's the conversion. It's the going from a broad view of what might be done to a specific view of what is done. And so, so that, if that's taking a decision, what's making a decision? Well, let's go to the next bit. Well, the first thing you have to do in making a decision, I would argue, is to open things up. It's the divergent, the, 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 the actual bringing onto the table the data, the views, the opinions which might contribute to a decision. And if you then move on to the next bit, which is the middle bit, which is, which is the emergent, which is where you organize the data and sort it out. You see who thinks what and, and whether there are clashes or whether people want to work together. It's only when you've done that, I would argue, that with confidence, you should be able to move to that taking of a decision. So, so on the basis of that, one of the things that I've, I've noticed over the years is that often in an organizational context, in a leadership context, in the life context, people have a view that actually it's really important for a leader to be decisive. And what they tend to mean is that don't faff around, arrive at a decision, arrive at a decision. But what I would argue, I, I wouldn't necessarily argue completely against that, 
And obviously, there's a whole movement in leadership that says sometimes it's better to to to, to make a decision, any decision, rather than no decision. I would also argue, as Michael's showing us, that sometimes it's better to decide not to decide. Why? Well, there are all sorts of reasons why, from a leadership point of view, it might be better not to decide. One is you may not yet have gone through those opening two parts of the process, the divergent and the emergent, before you come to the convergent. But there could be other reasons, too. You could have put the data on the table and noticed that there are big gaps in it. You could notice that some of the data is working in opposite directions. From a leadership point of view, leaders who decide all the time, sometimes they're less effective because actually what they're not doing is drawing on the skills or knowledge of their team or developing the skills or knowledge of their team. So as a leader, sometimes I might decide not to decide because I want my team members to decide. And yes, they may make a slightly different decision from me. They may make the wrong decision. But maybe we can afford that and maybe they'll learn something. So, so, so lots of leaders who talk to me about how hard it can be to delegate. One of the questions I ask them is, are you filling all the space actually where by making decisions where what you really need to do is pull back? But the third of the 10 reasons in the book that I'll pull out around when it's better to decide not to decide is that sometimes an instant decision or my decision is just a reaction. And I may not be in good shape to make a decision at a particular moment. And noticing my own state, which I'll come back to later on, can be a critical dimension of making a good decision. I think that lockdown, as it's been experienced around the world in different ways, for many people has been quite a good opportunity for them to examine some of their own impulses and reflexes and how they may sometimes just be triggered to act in a particular direction. And getting to know yourself to the extent that sometimes you can say, hold on a second, I'm just going to sleep on that one. I'm not going to make that decision today because maybe I've been pulled in a particular direction because of something that's happened is a, is a sign, I think, of leadership wisdom. So get to the heart of the book. What, what, what should we do or what could we do? Well, if we move to the next slide, one of the, one of the really central elements of all this is once again thinking about all the groups I've been around the projects. Um, a question that often gets asked in my experience is, you know, what is the strategy? Where strategy is a noun, it's a thing that you should have that's going to help you make a decision. And on my reflection, what I noticed was that having a strategy often wasn't an indicator of getting to a better decision, but the ability to strategize was. And in the book, I, I draw on an old chestnut, which is um, which is an essay that's been written by many people over the years, and I've just borrowed a bit of it, which is about the fox and the hedgehog. So the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. And the first recorded instance of that uh, parallel or comparison being made is Archilochus back in the sixth century BC. But basically, what it's saying, and and you know, I'm not knocking hedgehogs. You know, hedgehogs work with what they've got. What they eat is mainly under their nose. Um, they don't have great offensive tools, but they've got great defense. And, and so they use what they've got very well for their environment. The fox is different, though. So the, the, the hedgehog has a strategy around its eating, around its defense, around where it lives and all that sort of stuff. The fox is a strategist, and the fox can adapt. So the, doc, the fox can live in an urban or a rural environment. The fox can eat pretty much whatever is available to it. 
And the fox is always thinking and adjusting about, for example, modifying its behavior around certain human beings or potentially dangerous animals to it. And actually noticing over time that if those animals aren't attacking it, it can probably get closer and closer. I live in London. There are foxes that will actually play in the park just across the street from me. So in, in the book, what I talk about in terms of strategizing is three separate things that I think you need to have the ability to do. One is astronomy. One is archaeology. And the third one is geography. And if I take them in reverse order, geography, I think, is pretty commonly used in strategizing, which is the ability to look around you and see where the landmarks are. So something like the good old-fashioned SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, might be a way of using geography to work out your situation relative to what's going on. Jumping to the beginning, the astronomy bit, once again, I think gets used quite a lot, but, but often gets used and then forgotten about. And astronomy is about the North Star. And I talk, you know, the North Star, I say, if you were designing a planet and you wanted to have a, a, a reliable way of being, of people being able to tell which direction they were pointing in to be able to navigate, you could do a lot worse than put a big sign up over one bit of the planet, which, which always stays in the same bit and says, this is North. Well, that's what the North Star Polaris does. Whereas other stars move around in the night sky relative to the position of the Earth. And knowing what your North Star is means knowing where you're trying to get to. So a lot of organizations do work around purpose or vision or mission or where are we trying to get to. The problem often is that having done that work, they put it to one side, do their SWOT analysis and get on with stuff. My view is that what you need to do is to compare and contrast. And when you get lost in the detail of the geography, you go to the astronomy. The third element is uh, what I call uh, archaeology, which is digging into the roots of your organization or your team or yourself. And people talk often about history uh, in organizations or teams. So when you're, when you're thinking about which way to go, people will often cite examples from the past of when, oh, yeah, we tried that before. Or, yeah, there was a project sometime that did that. Or, you know, in the early years of the business, we did a lot of that. I tend, when I'm working with a team, to divide history, because I think it's useful, into two parts. One is I call heritage, and the other is baggage. So what is it about our team, which is what we've learned, what we've acquired? Maybe we didn't enjoy getting it, but it's there in the bank. It's knowledge, it's capacity that we have that can help us. That's heritage. What are our source spots? What are the mistakes we've made in the past? Where are our deficiencies? That's, you know, where, where's the conflict around this thing? That's the baggage. And together, heritage and baggage make the third element of my strategizing process, along with astronomy and, and geography. And from my point of view, what you're trying to do as a decision maker is to triangulate those three, be more fox, be less hedgehog, and work your way towards the future. The Jenga set there comes from a friend of mine called Jim Gimeon, who's part of a group that translated at a certain point the art of war, uh, you know, the, the famous go-to ancient manual for generals everywhere and people trying to run a household. And um, in the art of war, there's a concept, concept called she, which relates to this idea that what you also have to do, as well as working with the parts, is to try and look at the whole of a problem. And for many years, in some of the work I've done with groups, I've used actual Jenga, which is that little game, wooden blocks, you try and build the tower up. And what I've noticed is it's a really brilliant uh, illustration of this. Don't have a strategy, be a strategist. Because a lot of people, when the, t when the brief is to build the tower as tall as possible, they'll say things like, 
let's just take the middle bricks out because that will keep it more solid around the edges and it, and it will make it more stable. That's our strategy. If they do that, what they quickly discover is that by just taking the middle bricks out, they very much limit how high they can go. Whereas the strategists will move around the whole thing. They'll poke a brick here and a poke a brick there. They'll notice that when they pull a brick out, another brick which was stuck will loosen up. And therefore that can become the next brick. Or the opposite, a brick which was loose and wanted to move gets stuck. So, so the strategist is constantly working with a situation looking to see how it can be developed. I'm nearly there in terms of the, the lessons from the book that I wanted to share with you. If we can go to the next slide, uh, Michael. So, 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 so the value of ignorance, it may seem really perverse to say that actually in leadership or decision making or at home, sometimes not knowing is a real advantage. And I've got, a, I've got a brief story from the financial services world uh, around this one. So in around 2007, I happened to be working at a similar time with leaders from the arts, so people who ran theatres and studios and music projects and so on, and also with the kind of middle to senior managers of one of our most famous banks, who I won't tell you who they were, and very similar briefs around their leadership and what they needed to do. And at a certain point, we got into this, this, this question of when can it be helpful not to know and to own up to that fact? Because to my mind, and it goes back to that idea of before you take a decision, make it, open things out. Because if you think you know all the time what you need to do, chances are you're missing something. So there's an exercise, which I won't go into the detail of, but which basically involved asking these leaders as part of their development to, to do some work where they had to go around telling each other stuff as if they knew everything. And then we'd switch into going around being what I, a colleague of mine used to call Little Green Martian, which is, I've just landed here. What's going on? What can you tell me? Curiosity is a leadership discipline. Long story cut short, the arts leaders loved, I don't know, curiosity, opening things up. Because working with artists, they realized that they could never know what an artist was going to do. The bankers actually refused. They, I had a rebellion. It's one of the few times in my 30-year career working with, with characters in organizations. They, they actually rebelled. Because basically, their view was they'd never in their whole lives at school, at college, in work, been rewarded for, for not knowing. And frankly, if they admitted to not knowing in, in their context, they would be fired ultimately. Which is really ironic, because this was 2007. And when the crash happened in 2008, and was then unpacked through people like Michael Lewis, one of the big things that emerged was that in financial services, a lot of quite senior people owned up to the fact that a lot of the instruments they'd been using, they hadn't really understood them. But they'd been too embarrassed to ask, what does this mean? What does this do? And that had actually exposed their, their unwillingness to go to I don't know, had exposed them and their organizations to quite significant risk. So the, the bit in the middle here is the power of maybe, which is about having a more scientific process, which is about the power of hypothesis. And there are, there are chunks in the book about how you can get from all possibilities to your final answer by passing over this bridge. You may not be able to see it in the graphic. The bridge says M-A-Y-B-E, maybe. And it takes you from I don't know on the left-hand side to I know. And there are lots of techniques, some of which you all have. I mean, some of which might just be writing down 20 ideas and then crossing out 19 of them till you've got one left. But the scientific view which is that you develop a hypothesis and then test it, 
or you know the Kaizen view of continuous improvement, which is about being able to develop a view, a plan, doing something, reviewing how it went, and kind of finessing your way to an answer, has a massive amount of power. And I think just to bring it home for a minute, you know, our, our options are going to be limited about where we go on holiday this summer for lots of us. Um, and you know, so talking with the family of well, what shall we do? Just a lot of the techniques in the book, I think there's one which is about, well, let's write down 10 things that we really don't want to do. And then the 11th thing, let's say, but we could do this and see if we can kind of creep up on ourselves. Or here, let's develop some hypotheses based on, you know, different wacky ideas and rein them in till we get to something that we can do. The power of maybe, I think, once again, is something which is, which is maybe, I was going to say it's underutilized in organizations. I think certainly in the circles that I move in now, people are more open than they used to be to the idea of a prototype. You know, let's try this. And that brings us neatly to what I think is pretty much my last or my penultimate slide, Michael, if you would. Um, oh, no, there's one before that. Yeah, so, so my background, as I said, I think at the beginning, my fascination, which took me into the work I've done, is about groups and culture. And I think one of the questions that... <laughs> Well, one of the questions that leaders and people in, in, in all sorts of situations often ask, including family ones, is, do I have to involve them in the decision or can I just make this myself? And the truth is often, because the others are going to be needed, you know, I, I need my family to come on holiday with me. If it were just up to me, I could make the decision by myself, but I have to involve them. Or on this major project, it, it's all very well for me to say what I want them to do, they have to do it. Or to get topical, British government, if I want to go into a lockdown or come out of lockdown, I can say whatever I like, and the scientists can say whatever they like, but actually it's going to be what the British public actually does. Are they going to have a barbecue? Are they going to drive to the north of England? Or whatever it is. So we have to face up to the fact that groups are going to need to be involved in decisions. And 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 sometimes from my point of view as the facilitator or leader, I might be thinking, well, or, or I might not be the most powerful person in the group, but but I may have a choice about how I work with that group in reaching that decision. This part of the book talks about two key commodities in the group. One is how much power do they have? You know, to, 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 do they have the right to decide this thing? Or actually, at the end of the day, do they, are they quite insignificant? And the other one is about how much wisdom they have. How much do they know? How, how much of a field do they have? And, and depending where they fall, and the same group, by the way, may go into all four of these categories in the space of one hour in one meeting because different agenda items take them to different places. You know, if they've got lots of power and they know a lot, then actually my job is just to facilitate them because they can get there by themselves. If they've got lots of wisdom but not much power, bottom right, then then consult them. Ask them what they think. But 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 make it don't pretend that they're going to make the decision because they don't have the power to do it anyway. Bottom left, they have neither the power nor the wisdom. Well, you're just going to tell them what you should do or what they should do. You brief them. And lots of, I think this is a quite a common one. They, you know, with a board or an exec team or whatever, they've got lots of power, but they don't necessarily know a lot about the topic. And if they're brave, they'll admit it. Well, in that situation, I might need to dress it up a bit, but basically what I'm doing is coaching them to try to get them to a better decision, which does bring us to the penultimate slide. And, and the chip and pin, back to chip and pin. So this is a really interesting thing. So you can imagine it, and I'm sure some of you working in this world really can imagine it. You've got 20 brands working on chip and pin, 
and you've got the schemes, you know, you've got Visa and MasterCard and all those sort of people. And, and at that point, certainly, it's less the case now. If you walked into any retailer, you'd see a, a load of stickers on the door and then around the point of sale, you know, with different kind of brands of the, of the, of the cards and the payment technologies. And about six months before what was called Pin Day in 2006 in the UK, where, where the ability to sign was going to be switched off, uh, and you had to do this, although of course it had been phased in many, over many years. The, 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 the view was of the experts within our group, the context experts, that we needed something to be able to, to put that message across so that people would be able to, 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 to kind of, it would register with them that they were going to have to do this and that we needed a, some sort of logo. And there was massive resistance to this within the steering group of, of the chip and pin program because all the brands who were there felt that this would just be competing with their brands and making the whole environment more cluttered and complicated. And one of the things I was very proud of was that in four years of chairing that group, we never had a vote. And this was probably the, because everything was done by consensus. And that stood us in really good stead here because I think if it had come to a vote, there would have been some very powerful players who would have voted against it. But what was agreed was, and this was sort of the, the back end of 2005, was that we would do it for three months. We'd have a, we, we'd blitz the landscape with this logo for three months, just so that in the run up to Valentine's Day 2006, that people would get that message. And that's what we did. And on the, just on the day before pin day 2006, the front page of the Daily Mail said, literally, little old ladies will die because they won't be able to get their food, because they won't understand how to do this. Actually, it went really smoothly. This this logo did its work. It played its part in that. But the really interesting thing was, which, which back, once again takes me back to the accidental nature of decisions, it was only meant to be there for three months. And 14 years later, because it kind of works, and it has worked, I'm sure it will disappear, particularly as you get more into contactless, it's still there. Final, my final slide, but very briefly, core competence. What's the core competence of, of, of better decisions? For me, there are very few life and death decisions that you have to get right first time. And there are very few decisions which, left to my own devices, I can't just leap to a pretty quick view of what I want to do. So as I said earlier, knowing myself, um, and there's a whole story in the book behind this, which I won't go into now, but then also critically, having made a decision, being able to get into that mentality of getting curious about what happens next. So, you know, so many decisions actually were fine. But what happened was that I made the decision. I followed it through. I refused to admit that anything other than that could be right and therefore failed to detach myself, which would have enabled me to then maybe slightly adjust it and make it work perfectly. So for me, these are the core competencies of better decisions, knowing what turns me on and off and being able to detach myself from the outcome. So that was what I wanted to bring you today from my book. Uh, it costs less than a tenner um, in the UK. I'm really happy to take any questions or observations that you have through Michael. Thank you. Chris, that was wonderful, and a real candor through a book. Folks, it is a short book, uh, but there's a lot packed into it, and we've actually only only had a taste of it. Uh, Chris, uh, one of the things I was very pleased you put in your slide deck, because it's a little bit complicated, was that whole bit about groups. And you were pretty darn clear. There are just cases where a lot of this touchy-feely stuff, no, just tell them what's happening, you know, politely, but tell them. They're not going to be involved in it because they don't have the wisdom to help or 
they don't have the power now. I thought that was a really powerful and core insight uh, to a lot of things. It reminded me of what was that quote from Clemenceau, you know, that uh, uh, a committee should never be too large uh, and should always consist of an odd number and three is too many. <laughs> and I, I quite, quite, quite like those sorts of things. Or it was De Gaulle who went on about, uh, what was it, uh, something like, gentlemen, I disagree with uh, the way this committee is taking the decision. The answer is X. It is therefore unanimous. <laughs> but it's a kind of candor. Um, do you feel we've been too much to group decision making? Are we too polite to groups? I mean, we've got work to do. One of the core concepts that, that I use in my work, my leadership that I suggest is, is contracting. It's, you know, groups, I think where groups become dysfunctional very quickly, and I, I touch in the book on Wilfred Bion, who was the kind of the great granddad of, of group dynamics. He, he coined phrases like fight, flight, and those patterns that come up in groups. But, you know, if a group knows where it stands, then often that's more important than saying to it, you're in charge. You know, so, so being honest. And if, if, if you're having to change gear between those four quadrants from saying, okay, on that last one, you know, we maybe as a group have spent the last six months genuinely working out together how we're going to do this. But on the next decision, I'll tell you what, we're just going to listen to the scientists to coin a phrase from now on. The more important thing, I think, Michael, is, is being clear and open and contracting or recontracting with the group. This is how we're going to make this decision. We're all going to talk about it, and then I'm going to make it. Or we're all going to talk about it, and then two of you are going to go off and decide what we actually do. Okay. And, and just even with a team that's really familiar with each other, or a family, <laughs> where it's even harder, you know, just making it clear up on how the decision's going to be made and being flexible in that, I think, is the key. Now, the board's lit up, and I don't want to dominate, but I, I was wondering if you just spent 15 seconds. You had a really good uh, point in the book about your uh, divergent, you know, emergent and convergent, but you gave a, a really fantastic tip about body language in meetings for the person who's chairing. Do you want to just share that? Oh, wow. That that opens the door to a whole other world that I've, I've benefited from learning, which is kind of somatic leadership. So leadership through how you move. And I do think that, you know, if you, if you, really interesting exercise, which, which, which is horrible if you ever have it done to you, but, but, but fascinating. You can do it on the television is when a leader's speaking, turn the volume down and see what their body language is telling you. And, you know, all those famous cliches that leaders use, like, you know, our people are our most valuable asset or I, I want to say the checks in the post, but that's not really relevant. But the, the joking aside, <laughs> One of the things which I just give an insight in the book, which, which I've seen work very well, is that if you need to get to a decision quickly, it helps to change the way that you talk and you use your body. It's not being inauthentic, but you use shorter phrases. You say, this is what we're going to do. Off we go. But if you use that body language when you're saying, I really want to know what you think. I really want you to input your views. I really want to hear from every single one of you what your view. I don't care how wacky it is. If, if that's the physical message I'm giving people, then there's a dissonance. So when I'm asking people for their views, there's a whole body of skills in facilitation that I call Cheshire Cat skills, Alice in Wonderland. The ability to disappear from the tail upwards. And like a good referee in sport or umpire, you know, the great games are the ones where you forget that the umpire was there. Great leadership is often where they forget the leader was there because they just get into the fascinating conversation. So if I want your views, I'll just fade back a bit and mm. say, I'm really interested in what you think about this. 
why, why don't you let's just I don't mind if there are awkward silences let's just spend a few so 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 I think that's yeah. that's the answer Michael just getting to the body language which matches the question yeah I, I love that the whole idea that I express things openly I kind of and then I narrow in great stuff I love your and three faces none of that being inauthentic it's all me no. uh, if you really mean it then you should um, now we got a lot of questions so we're going to have to ask you to be snappy uh, and several promises to purchase the book. Uh, Tim Coleman uh, says it looks great. He's found the ebook. Any plans for an audio book? Um, not yet, but okay. If demand's uh, there. Now Sean Taylor might disagree with me that we're being uh, too deferential to groups. He says, uh, "Why have we seen the emergence of strong men, strong women leadership in the last couple of years?" In his opinion. Wow, that's interesting. Well, it also introduces gender, and, and I'm being fascinated by the whole COVID response thing, and I'm sure a lot of research will be that will will be done on it. But the pro, the preliminary indications that countries led by women seem to have done better through this crisis, um, and and countries led by strong men seem to be suffering greater losses in terms of life and economic impact. So uh, maybe it won't be a long-lasting trend. Uh, Jane in West London, uh, it's an inside joke here, I'm afraid, is asking, do you think large organizations on the whole are structurally equipped to make better decisions as you define them? Wow. No, I don't, because I think that one of the things which often isn't valued, and maybe even it's been even more a casualty when we're having loads of video conferences, is time to think. Um, one of the ways I judge organizations that I work with is, you know, is it considered a, a sin? If you, if someone is sitting at their desk like this, um, or, or maybe reading a journal or goes off for a walk to think about something, and there are too many organizations where the time that's used, the way that time's used doesn't allow for those divergent and emergent bits. Some of the most effective organizations I work, I work a lot in sport and one of my favorite organizations is the English Institute of Sport, which is where the boffins are who underpin our Olympic and Paralympic performance. And they have, they, they have spaces, they design spaces which are specifically about the divergent and the emergent. Oh. You can make a convergent decision anywhere, but you need different kinds of spaces to be able to throw ideas around. Yeah, that was another thing you put in the book I rather liked. You know, where you make your decision is, is important and you've got a choice. You can go for a walk with somebody, lots of things you can do. Uh, Bob McDowell, uh, picking up on your heritage baggage. How difficult is it for an enterprise to capitalize on its heritage in times of great mobility and change? That's a really good question because I think, I think the answer is it is quite difficult because there's a tendency, it, particularly in times of difficulty, your focus narrows and you may forget that you've got some stuff in the toolkit that, that you've acquired through pre. So I, I think like a lot of things in, in the book, but also generally, what really helps what if, if, if you were to ask me, what's the exercise that can, that's almost guaranteed to get value from a team thinking about how they're going to take on a problem? Drawing a line down the middle of a flip chart and saying, what have we got going for us, including stuff that we've acquired? What's going to get in our way? Just doing, just literally getting them out. So being conscious about your heritage and your baggage, I think is really, really powerful thing to do. In the example, one of the examples I use in the book is, is, is the, the Henry T. Ford, you, you know, you can have any color you like as long as it's black, uh, for his cars. And there was something that he was, he was being true to the heritage of 
his manufacturing processes in saying that. And what he was also doing was resisting the baggage of marketeers saying, well, we've got to give the customers what they want. We've got to give. And, and, and at that time, he was making a call based on that tension. Yeah, excellent point. One of the jokes I often uh, talk about with my philosophy friends is kind of what's the what's the first major decision you make in life? I don't my know what it is. That my answer is uh, whether or not you believe in free will. <laughs> and therefore, the first decision is all about you. Uh, Paul Hammer's asking, you refer to detaching yourself from the outcome of a decision. Is that ever really possible? Can we truly be detached? Well, it's it, it, that's a really great question. And yes, because... Actually, it's, oh, I'm so excited. I pulled my, I'm so excited about it. I pulled my headphone out, Paul. Um, it's difficult because once we make a decision, we're invested in it. But real life tells us that something slightly different is probably going to happen anyway. So my technique for that, or one of the techniques, it's always hard to work on an absence of something. So if I tell you not to get attached to something, it's really hard to do. The easier thing is to substitute something else in. And for me, the core competence is curiosity. So I, I make a decision and then I see what happens and I get curious about what happens next. And that's what enables, I think, a lot of really effective leaders to be very powerful because they say the first thing, they see what happens and then they adjust or they leave it. And there's, there's a chat, there's a lesson in the book. The book's divided into 20 lessons. One of them is called going with the flow and, and often, just letting things unfold, but being vigilant as to what's actually going on, I think it is possible. Now, we're going to have to be quick here, but there are a lot of good questions here. I'm, I'm just going to kick off uh, three in a row, really, about boards. Anna McLeod's kind of curious. Do you have any advice for managing group discussions and decisions when the same characters or egos get the floor? Yeah, absolutely. Very simple stuff. The, the, the This, you know, old technology... You know, ask the question and say, before I hear any of you, everyone just write down their top idea. And then, you know, and nobody speaks twice till everyone's put theirs on the table, but get to them last. Yeah. Or, um, just reframing the question. Um, one of the things I often do is split a question into bits and, and get people to go into subgroups and have the conversation in pairs and then and, and come back. I think a lot of people get very traditional around how a board needs to function you can split them into subgroups you can do all sorts of things with them yeah there is something is it we have a board meeting and then everybody's there uh, parodying yeah. some 1950 film um michelle moore asks if you sit on a board and have a major presentation to get consensus on something important is it also about trying to get alliances on board before the meeting it can be i actually that's a great question michelle i think the more important thing is often after the meeting so if I take the example, so, so, you know, if you do it before the meeting, the danger is you're missing something or something's going to come up in the meeting that derails you anyway. And if you're in the trusted, if you're chairing it or in the facilitator role, you may lose trust. If people get the sense that you've been stitching it up in advance, much more powerful. So if I take the idea of the chip and pin logo, most of my work as chair was done after that meeting. And I went to the people who I knew were, were rather annoyed that that had been the consensus. And I went and chatted with them and I reassured them that if it was confusing the market, that I would fully support it being withdrawn. So I think often, you know, that thing where people complain, we thought we'd all agreed something and we decided something and then people went off and did something different. The key there is go and have that chat, even as on the way out of the meeting room. 
go and have the, the informal chat that says, what do you really think about that decision? Actually, I'm a bit annoyed, but I'm kind of hoping that you can work things through after the meeting, often much better than before. Uh, and also on boards, uh, Sarah Pickford's asking, how do you ensure, she's, she's going to haul us up on this one, how do you ensure boards make good decisions when it is not them who necessarily have the wisdom? Ah, yeah, that's, that's a really tough one. Um, how you work with experts is so interesting. Yeah, you know, and, and once again, without getting capital B political, the whole, these daily news conferences that we've been having, we don't anymore with, where you get the politicians and the scientists and who's in charge. But for me, a very powerful tool, which once again often is underused, is getting the right expert, who might be the most junior person in the in the room or in the team, to to give their expertise. But so 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 that whole thing, which is top left, which is about coaching the senior folk. Good leaders love to be taught stuff they don't know yet. Good leaders will own up to the fact that they don't know yet what they need to know. If your leaders are a little less secure than that, then that going back to Michelle's question. That's when I might want to go to the leader or to the group in advance of the meeting and say, before we have the meeting, you might just want to read this <laughs> or whatever it is. Which leads us on to uh, quite a few questions on leadership and we could tease the distinction between boards and leaders and all that. But um, Sean Taylor is curious about uh, any thoughts on leading in the new economy? Uh, do leaders run the risk these days of people being offended as they're asked to do something? Oh, I chaired, I, I, I chaired a big session at the um, European Retail Real Estate Summit last year, which was people who own shopping centers. And I chaired the whole thing, but there was a, there was a kind of a generations meet session where you had a very senior chief exec and a relatively new junior marketeer on the stage with me. And the chief exec said something absolutely brilliant. He said, he, you know, he said he spent 30 years in his career looking at how the bosses behaved and trying to be more like them so he could rise through the organization. And now he's arrived. He realized that what he needs to do now is look at the 20-somethings in his organization, at their relationship with technology, at their attitude to work, because not only can he learn how to work with them better, but he, he can learn to work with the world as it's emerging better. So I do think that for leadership in a lot of sectors, there's a lot, there's a massive opportunity to, to learn from people younger than you. That may or may not be addressing your specific question, but it comes to mind. Well, uh, actually, speaking of uh, sectors, Sean actually goes on and wanted to know, as your career in sport developed, did you take part in the sharing of leadership in the military? It seems very popular. Uh, personally, having spent time in the MOD, I've seen it the other way, the sports people come over. Uh, it always seems that every sector thinks some other sector has got all the leaders. And, I, and whilst I happen to agree that it's a good idea to think out of the box, be a bit multidisciplinary, um, do, you, do you have any particular sector um, that you um, think does decisions making better? And what do you think about sharing among sectors? Well, one of my, yeah, I've been fortunate to, to, to dip into and to have teachers from lots of sectors. One of the reasons why in the UK, I, I always talk about our, our Olympic and Paralympic sport as one of our world-class industries is because we came second in both medals tables in Rio and coming from a position certainly on the Olympic side of being really rubbish a few years ago. And one of the things which we've done brilliantly in sport in this country is learn from different sectors. But what I think is a bit like folk music. If you listen to one of those folk music programs where they play music from around the world, 
I begin to think that actually if I'm li- listening to Aboriginal folk music from Australia and music from Peru and music from Ireland, really old folk songs, I start to hear patterns. Same with leadership wisdom. So the military, one of my favourite things, which I had the opportunity to see once in the UK through work with sport, was the in the chapel at Sandhurst where the officers get trained, they have their, their motto is to serve, to lead. And that whole area of servant leadership, you know, being the last to the water fountain as the leader or whatever, has a strong tradition in the military, but also in some contemplative traditions as well. And they kind of come together. So I'm a real magpie when it comes to wisdom. And at the end of the day, for me, the important thing is not getting too narrowly. I think this also relates to Paul's question earlier about attachment. You can get attached to your model, your theory, your way. And for me, the better leaders are the ones who are prepared to look around and and draw from different traditions. Uh, and Hugh Purser would like you to expand. We're going to have to be brief, uh, but uh, could you expand on noticing my own state, state, which is related to what you just said there? How can you persuade others to do the same? You know, uh, I, mean, I, I, well, I love these traditions like Sanders, where you really try to point out to people it's not about them, it's about what they do, but getting people outside of their own heads so that they're really thinking widely and yet self-aware? Well, my short answer to that is that you can't do it for others until you've done it for yourself. So if you get really good at doing, you know, that, and in the book there are some practices like automatic writing or other, or the way that Dali, the artist, used to paint, how he went into his subconscious. There are different ways to become more familiar with your own state. And I found that the better I am at working with myself, the better I'm able to offer others. Because there's no point just saying you need to be more aware of your own own state. You need to offer them techniques and tools. And maybe that is a good place to end because there are quite a lot in the book. Oh, we're not going to end there. We've got a couple more we're going to squeeze in. Oh, you're not going to get out of this one so easy. Uh, uh, Both Tim Woodhouse and Sean Taylor have some questions uh, about uh, the NHS and the pandemic. But I'm just going to, I'm going to ask Tim because I think it's a little bit closer to what you might. How can I encourage public sector bodies to take chances? The maybe prototype, as it were. Does the concept of public money stifle good decisions? Great question. I think that sometimes there's a, the, most of the book is about what can I do? What can we do in the moment? What are the techniques? What I haven't gone into so much, but I think it's relevant to this question, is, is governance. And most good public sector bodies and most good bodies in general will have a formal process, which is talking about their risk appetite. and the, the challenge I find with it, so a couple of the boards that I'm on and have been on, you know, every year the board will say, what do we think our risk appetite could and should be in relation to our key elements of work? And the problem is they have that conversation, they make an agreement, and then they put that in the, and they just carry on doing what they've always done, which is where this self-awareness thing comes in. So I think, once again, it comes down to contracting. And I think one of the things that stops public sector bodies taking risks where they need to is they think that because they've done that, that makes them risky across the board. So what you also can do is segment all your tasks and decisions where you say, look, this lot, 80%, we have to have a very low risk appetite because we can't afford to get these things wrong. And we basically, But this 10%, we can have a bit. This 10%, if we're not taking risks, we're probably not doing it. So I'll give you an example for a current situation. The whole question of how digital and data gets used to help people get more active is something where I feel that the sports councils in, in this country need to be taking lots of risks 
because we don't, nobody really knows how to do it. It's been done more in transport around some of the apps that can get you around the town. Apps that get me active, still early days. So I think the sports councils need to invest in quite wacky things because one of them could work, but in a managed way. Uh, second to last question. Um, it's from uh, Ian in West London, a reader of yours. Uh, uh, so far, West is practically Wales, I, I think. Uh, in the book, you talk about an autonomous agency to make and take decisions. I worry that the current pandemic or lockdown might inadvertently be enhancing a timorous culture that makes many people nervous of making decisions for themselves. Do you think my concerns are justified? Wow. Yes. And I think that's a really, wow, that's a really powerful question. And, and I think that's a really good example of where if I were in a position to do something about it, if I were in government, I think that's a really good example of a question where I, my answer would be, I don't know. I don't know what the effects, but let's, let's really have a look at that because a lot of people have been saying build back better or, you know, the new normal or whatever. I think that's a, there is a real opportunity to think about what sort of society we want to be. And, and forgive me, those of you not in the UK, for us having made our decision about Brexit and so on, there are real, you know, whatever your views, right or wrong, it's a real opportunity to think about what kind of nation do we want to be? How are we going to address this whole generation of kids who've missed a big chunk of school? What is the impact on people? And I know some who don't want to go out. So, so, so the best answer, I think, is I don't know, but let's think about it. Well, you know, it's funny. We, we, we can say penultimate or second to last, but I can't say the ultimate question, even though it is the last question. Because I'm not sure it's that great, but it's for me. Um, and Chris, you know, you were on the press uh, ten days ago or so, uh, speaking about the need for the nation to address the entire Black Lives Matter uh, situation and the heritage uh, issues that we face. And I don't, and what, uh, the baggage. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm just kind of curious. Uh, it's a great book, but what sort of advice would you give the nation to make better decisions about this important situation? Oh. That those three areas of strategizing. So what kind of nation do we want to be? Astronomy. What's going on in the world around us that we can profit from or get in our way? Geography. But most important, what is our heritage? And what is the baggage that we haven't properly addressed in any form of life or therapy? And until you've examined the roots of the problem, it's really hard to resolve it. And I think that around that particular set of issues, that's why I use the metaphor of a kind of truth and reconciliation commission. Not about embarrassing people or showing people, but until you get a, it's a, in an organizational um, context, there's often a project that went disastrously wrong five years ago that no one will talk about. Where talking about it is probably the root of your next 10 years success. So our, our willingness to talk about the heritage and the baggage, I think, is a really important uh, tool uh, that we can use around the aftermath of this latest trigger uh, around this whole difficult set of questions around race. Wow. Well, Chris, I made a deliberate choice to overrun. <laughs> so I made a better decision, I hope. I think I did, for sure. Uh, it's been really, really fascinating today. Uh, I should probably uh, share with you my technique for making a decision. And uh, again, something you emphasize in the book, don't forget the importance of gut feeling. You know, it's always to take a coin and uh, flip it. And I put it on my hand. And then you know what I do? I don't look. 
I ask, well, what do I want it to show? <laughs> You'd be surprised how many times that helps. But uh, what a great, what a great candor, folks. Uh, I, I know many of you promised me in the questions you'll buy it. Uh, it is worth it, and it's fun, or it wouldn't generate such a wonderful discussion today. Um, I'm afraid I'll come back to you in a moment, if I might, Chris. I just need to give a couple of thanks out. Uh, my first set of thanks, as ever, must be to our sponsors who allow us, as I said earlier, uh, to have such fantastic sessions. My second thanks, of course, have got to be to you, the listeners. Uh, I will be feeding all of the questions and comments back to Chris, so he, he will see them uh, and can get back to some of you uh, if you wish. Uh, a reminder that we would also thank you for turning up for some other webinars. We've got quite a bit coming up. Uh, tomorrow, you can exercise your thinking. We have five polls in a session tomorrow on ethical commitment focused on two deep ethical paradoxes, which I think you will find exciting and interesting. Uh, we're going to have a large session on the future shape of the insurance industry from insurance industry veteran, no less, uh, Dennis Mahoney, who is going to be <laughs> giving some caustic comments after 50 plus years in the industry and so on. So just as ever, go check out the website. Need I say more? I might uh, close with one of my favorite jokes, my father, if you can have a favorite dad joke, was one where he said to me, son, you know, a guy goes into a coffee shop and he orders a coffee. He says, I'll have a coffee without cream. The waitress says, well, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have any cream. Will you have it without milk? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we didn't have time to get to some of the other fascinating comments here, for example, on too much choice, or perhaps in that case, too little. Uh, Chris, it has been a delight to have met you uh, via this this format. One day, I hope we can uh, have better decisions in a pub somewhere. Uh, but may I thank you so much for thank giving you. your time and your thinking today to our community. We really appreciate it. Um, and thank I'm afraid you, uh, thank I you, can't everyone. open up and let them applaud, but I can, in fact, thank you myself. So <laughs> thank you. We try hard here, Chris. Thank you so much, and we'll see you all later. Ciao. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.